There was also a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife had agreed to this deception. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. Peter said, how could the two of you even think of doing a thing like this? Conspiring together to test the spirit of the Lord. Just outside the door are the young men who buried your husband and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and all others who heard what had happened. Meanwhile, the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And the believers were meeting regularly in the temple, in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. No one else dared to join them, though. Everyone had high regard for them. But more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of men and women. And as a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came in from villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. Welcome everybody, welcome to church. Um, yeah, so this morning we are carrying on with our, our vision third part series, which is the series on release, and we have a couple weeks left in this series before we obviously head into into Christmas season. And I, just to kind of, obviously if you've been around, the first, we've kind of gone through the first four chapters of Acts. And the first four chapters are just filled with so much goodness, aren't they? Just so much of, and everyone loves, and every, every pastor thinks that, that, that that's what their church should look like. There should be power, there should be prophecy, there should be so much. And, and we love to focus on the fact that they were sharing and generous and kind and all those things. And then uh, I think every person in church longs to see the church of Acts 1 to 4 to be their church, don't they? And then we jump Acts 5 quite often. Because actually that's not sometimes the church that we long to see. And as a pastor, I come before you right now and I come in fear. 
and in trembling. Because the weight of the word of God is so heavy. But there is so much hope because of Jesus. And so I'm going to, to share with you this morning this passage. But I have a little story to share. And uh, there, there's a story about two young boys. And they were quite rebellious in their town. They were renowned for being uh, quite cheeky. And if, if, if your tires went flat, you knew who it was. It was one of these two boys. If, if your fence was knocked down or if your house had been egged, you could guarantee it was one of these two boys. And so the mother was distraught, and she was like, I just can't, I don't know what to do with these boys. I've tried everything. So she goes to the local pastor, and she says to the pastor, Pastor, I, I'm really, I don't know what to do with these boys. I need you to speak to them and put the fear of God into them, because honestly, I don't know where this is going to end. So the pastor says to, to the mother, she says, okay, I'll, I'll chat to them, but as long as I speak to them one-on-one. So the mother's like, okay, if, well, whatever, I've kind of lost hope. I need you to give it a go. So anyway, uh, the pastor calls the youngest, and the youngest boy was 10, and he sits the youngest boy down, and he looks at the boy, and he says to the boy, where is God? The boy kind of looks a bit confused and doesn't know what to say, so he doesn't say anything. And then the pastor looks at him again and kind of stares at him and says, where is God? At this point, the boy is like really starting to freak out, and he's like, I just... He's not saying anything. He's just kind of trembling a bit now. And the third time, he says, the pastor says, where is God? At that point, the boy legs it. He runs out of that place as quickly as he can, and he finds his brother. And as he finds his brother, he's shaken. He's really scared. And he's like, he says to his brother, we're in big trouble. And at this point, the older brother's like, oh, no, what's wrong? What have we done? What have we done? The younger boy says, God is missing, and they think we've taken him. <laughs> Thankfully, God is not missing. But sometimes the fear of God can make us tremble, can't it? It can make us worry, just like it did for those two boys. But is the fear of God a bad thing? Or is it a sacred privilege to fear the maker of heaven and earth? In Proverbs, we read in uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to understand, if you want to be wise, you must fear God. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. For when we fear God, there is nothing that compares to him. There's nothing greater than him. And so everything just falls in significance beside him. And I've been thinking about this, and I I read an article a while ago, and it's actually the, the, the writer of that song, The Son of Suffering, his name is Matt Redman, and he's a worship leader and a great writer. And he wrote an article in Premier Christianity. And uh, he was talking about the holiness of God. And he said this, because, you know, sometimes we say, well, because of Jesus, we don't need to fear God. There's no, there's no element of fear left because of Jesus. 
But Matt Redmond says this, if we ever claim to draw near to Jesus, but all we find is a tame, ordinary, manageable God, we're probably not half as close to him as we'd like to think. When we truly near, when we're truly near to Christ, it's not just our sense of great of his grace and kindness that increases in measure. Our awareness of his holiness and his majesty will be on the increase too. If we claim to know Jesus, the, the one who died on the cross to save our soul, to, to pluck us out from hell so that we may have eternity with him in heaven, then we won't only know him as a loving, all kind, and all gracious God, which he is. We will know him as the holy, majestic King of Kings. What a privilege we have to come before God this morning. Because yes, he is a God of love, 100%. But he is still a holy, righteous God, 100%. Something our earthly minds cannot begin to fathom. How can a God of love be a God of wrath? But that is who our God is. And I say words like wrath and we think, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't say that in our church today. But only by by the grace of God come I. Only because of Jesus are we able to boldly approach his throne today. He is 100% God. He's 100% holy. And he's 100% loving. And you cannot separate the two. And when we we look through the Bible, we we see that actually holiness is, the holiness of God is interwoven throughout Scripture. It's interwoven through the story of humanity. It's interwoven through the story ever since creation. What does the beginning of the Bible say? It says, and God, God created. God was the beginning of time and he was holy before all other. And the word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct, and to separate from others. And if, if we look at the, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, if you want a good read and you want some drama, read the Old Testament. Uh, forget celebrity, get me out of here. So forget that. that. I mean, I know you might see some people eating bugs, but if you want some drama, read the Old Testament. It's crazy. Because when you see it, you see there's, there's, there's stuff where actually men and, and the women in the Old Testament, they, they couldn't even approach the tent of the presence of God. We sang a song today, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to sing your name. The only reason we can sing Yahweh, Yahweh today is because of Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, you couldn't even utter the name Jesus. You couldn't say the name of Jesus without fear and trembling. You can say, sorry, the name Yahweh because it was so holy. And the people had to separate themselves from certain things. When, they, when you read through the Old Testament, there were certain rituals and habits they had to do in order to appear holy before God. And they needed a, a mediator. They had to separate themselves when they were unclean or whatever. And I often think about how in COVID 2020, didn't we do the same? We separated ourselves because we weren't necessarily clean. We were seen as unclean. We were seen as infectious. And that's what they had to do in the Old Testament because they didn't understand, they couldn't 
They couldn't approach God because he was so holy. His holiness no one could comprehend. And every year there was a day called the Day of Atonement where they had to sacrifice a lamb in order to bridge the gap between them and God. But praise God, we don't live in the Old Testament, do we? We live in the New Testament where actually Jesus has already bridged that gap for us. But Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because of Jesus, because of his death, we don't need to to separate ourselves completely from God. We don't need to hide ourselves from God because actually when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and only Jesus because he died to set us free. In the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah had a a vision of of the temple. And in Isaiah 61 verse 1, he he talks about the fact that he sees God surrounded by seraphim who are a type of angel. And they are covering their faces because of the holiness and because of the righteousness of God. And they sing this song. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of Of his glory. You know, they're still singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And John Tyson says this the angels have looked, have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they still haven't got past the word holy. They have been in the presence of the God Almighty. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that presence shook the room just as we read last week in Acts 4. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The holiness of God has power to shake. It has power to overcome the presence of a place. It has power to change lives. And so when we look at the holiness of God, when we look at the fear of God, and when we look at this text, what do we see? Well, first of all, in this text, oh, I've missed the load. We see a great cover-up. We see in verses 1 to 10, a big chunk of the passage, we see this story. And this story is, is unbelievable. Like this story, I think, is one of these stories where you just, you can't begin to comprehend. But we see that Ananias and Sapphira are there and, and they've decided. It says, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold their property. And that's fine. I mean, selling property is great. But what we, we need to understand is when it says but, there's something before a but, isn't there? There's always, a, there's always a pretext to that part. And what we need to understand is before in chapter 4, we see that the believers had had a miraculous uh, pr- yeah, encounter with the presence of God. And that encounter with the presence of God encouraged them to start selling possessions and share it with each other to make sure that no one had need. And in verse 37 or 36, we see Joseph, also known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He sold a piece of land and he laid it at the apostles' feet in order for them to distribute to all those in the church that had need. 
And I'm sure that people were like, wow, that guy's really generous. He's amazing, isn't he? And I can just imagine Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira looking at Barnabas and looking at all the kind of praise he's getting and thinking, oh, oh, that, oh yeah, that looks good. Let, let me do that. And so they go and they decide to, to sell the land that they have. They decide to sell the property. And they decide to bring a, a portion of it before the, the apostles. So they come up with this, this plan, this great idea that they'll sell the land, but they won't give the whole amount, but they'll tell them that they've given the whole amount. So they sell it for like, say, $100. And they, what they do is they, they then give only a portion of it. So they give 50, but they say, oh, this is the total amount of the, the property. And they bring it before the apostles in order to make it look like they were doing a grandiose thing. And I love that when Peter carries on, he carries on and he sees right through the cover-up, doesn't he? He sees right through what's going on because the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so Peter says to him, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You know, selling the land was not the problem. Giving money to the apostles were not a problem. But the root of the challenge is that they felt they had to lie in order to look better than they were. Jesus calls it hypocrisy, the sin of pride. You know, pride is one of those things that can easily creep into each and every one of our lives. Without even realizing it, sometimes pride has taken a hold. And I know, I don't know if there's anyone in this room that if God looked deep into our hearts, we would say that there is not an ounce of pride. It wouldn't have mattered if they'd sold the land and gave 50% and told them they only gave 50%. But the problem is they tried to hide it. They tried to do a big show, and I, I, as I was reading this text, I just imagined, you know those charity um, nights or when you're doing the charity on TV, and they hold up those big mega checks, and they're like smiling because they can't hold these big checks, and it's always got the name of the person on it, isn't it? It's like, and this person gave 10,000 pounds, and it's like a bit like that, isn't it, for Ananias and Sapphira. They're like, check me out. I gave this much money, but that is so what we do today, isn't it? And it's easy for us to say, oh, I, uh, yeah, no, I, that's not me. But I know, you know, each and every one of us, we struggle with that sense of coming before God and being completely honest with him. Peter carries on and it says, you lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell <laughs> not, not, or not sell and as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours. So why did you lie? He was challenging him on what was hidden. Because so often our public praise and our public declaration does not always match our private devotion. Our public praise does not always match what is happening in our lives. I don't know about you, but and I felt greatly challenged by this. But there are days that I have come to church... <clears throat> with my wife 
and uh, bless her, she's at home with our, our sick kids at the moment. But there are days when I am not always the most gracious on the way to church. We are running maybe a little bit late, as is the African custom, and uh, uh, we get in the car and maybe there is not the nicest words being spoken at times, or maybe there's no words. I mean, this is just me. I know none of you argue with your spouses, um, but like, I felt greatly convicted because you, you drive and there's literally no words being spoken, or there's maybe just a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying not to shout at your kids because your kids are feeling the tension and they're like, ah, la, 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 la. And you're, like you're, you're getting angry at everything. The red light goes, you're like, oh, I'm going to. And then you, you arrive at the car park, you're like, you park the car, you're like, you meet Willie, hi, good morning. And then you get asked that question, how are you doing? And you're like, yeah, I'm doing great. Oh, life's brilliant, isn't it? It's just fab. (laughs) But deep down inside, you know that it's not. You know that all the way here, probably the night before, probably the weekend before, you've been having an absolute Barney at home. We had a prophetic word last week that this is a place where we can come in our PJ bottoms, in our scruffy hair. To me, it's a challenge to say, for me, I felt, God, I, I'm here. May I never come before you and forget that you want all of me. You don't want us to put on a face. You don't want us to pretend like everything's okay. You want us to, to be honest and to be truthful. Because God is interested in every single element. But what I find very interesting is that the plot thickens at this point. And, and, and it says in verse 5, As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. And everyone who heard about this was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. Boom. I mean... I, I just can't even imagine if, 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 if God was probably came to me today, I would probably also be in the same situation. That actually, these guys, that were, I mean, the guy, Ananias was probably so shocked that his sin was exposed that he just may have had a heart attack. We don't actually know what happened, but he just fell to the ground and he died. And the funniest thing is that we read in verse 7, it says, and, and, and three hours later, what I want to know is what was his wife doing for three hours? Like maybe he left her at home whilst he, she was doing her hair and her makeup. I don't know, but she came three hours later and not knowing what was going on, she came in and Peter asked her the same question. Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could you two, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? You, you, the young men um, who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out also. Verse 10, instantly, not a but, instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men returned, they picked up their body. And they went to bury it. These young men must have been, are you serious, Peter? Can you stop killing people? Like, honestly, 
We've just, like, actually three hours it took them to go and bury the person because the person had to be buried outside of the city. So it would have taken them a long time to go. So they probably were really tired in the, in the peak of day, come back, and they're like, joking me, another dead body. I mean, I can't imagine if that happened in church today. It was just unbelievable. But that is the, the, the weight of what's happening. But, you know, we might think this is so harsh and so, so what, why is God doing this? And we'll probably never fully understand. But the, the interesting thing is that the, the name of, of Ananias means God is gracious. And the name of Sapphira means beautiful. You know, we don't understand. And the only reason that we can comprehend is because God is so holy. He doesn't want us to pretend. He doesn't want us to be anything else that we're not. He wants us to be who we are so that we can have relationship with him. And the greater wonder is that God delays his righteous judgment in virtually all other cases. He simply could not live with the atmosphere of purity that marked the church at the time. We see that God is jealous for his church. He's jealous for the praise of his people. It says in Exodus 34, 14, it says, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, uh, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous we must first examine our public praise and profession to make sure that it matches our private practice and worship. You know, today we come before him and we may all be in a cover-up in one way, shape, or another. We all have areas of pride that we're like, God, there is a bit of pride in my life. There but the grace of God come I. Each and every one of us come before him in the cover-up of whatever we're facing in our lives today. But we can look at him because of his grace. So the great cover-up. Secondly, we see the great fear. It says in verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then verse 11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We see twice after Ananias and Sapphira died that great fear overcame the church. And I, I, I can just imagine that being the case. And as soon as I read this passage, I thought again of, of, of COVID 2020. Do you remember when you couldn't find a toilet roll on the shelves? You couldn't find a can of beans or, or tomatoes or anything like that because actually fear had gripped the whole country, hadn't it? But I believe that that was probably the wrong fear because our fear was not in God, but our fear was in man and in circumstances around us. But that's what we see. We see that actually it was this probably awkward moment. And I, I just, I have this vision of, of this moment, much like when you get in an elevator and no one's looking at each other. 
Like, you know that moment when you people, they're, 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 like, you get in, no one looks at each other, you've got that lift music, ding, 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 ding. but you kind of, no one looks at each other, everyone's looking down. Um, and you kind of that awkward moment where you're not sure whether you should engage or not. Like I can imagine that being the situation where two people have just dropped down dead and they're just like, they're not sure where to look. They're not sure what to say, but they are just gripped with this kind of. And that's what we see in this passage is that they were gripped with a fear of God. But as believers, when we talk about fear of God, we don't talk about being afraid of God, per se. We talk about reverence and awe of God. When God displays his power and his wonder, it should bring us to our knees in awe and respect. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, Therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The same verse that was in Deuteronomy, our God is a consuming fire, is confirmed in the New Testament. The God who was of yesterday is the same God of today. It's on us to come before him and to show him the reverence, the awe, and the respect that he's due. God is supremely holy, but he's also supremely good. He's supremely powerful, but he's also supremely friendly. I love what it says in verse 11 in the message where it says, By this time the whole church and in fact everyone who heard of these things had a healthy respect for God. They knew God was not to be trifled with. So often in today's society we think we can tell God what to do. So often... In today's society, we say, God, on my terms, not, not, not on your terms. Let me, let me live my life my way, because, you know, I probably know better. But these guys, they, they understood that actually God is holy, and he will have his way at the end of the day, because he has overcome the world. You know, I think about my daughter, and I think about, The way in which we are trying to help her set boundaries. And I think, you know, we've been doing something called time out. And she does not like time out. If you know my daughter, she's very sociable. Um, She's in everything and with everyone and is in everyone's face. So when you say three, she starts to twitch. Then you're like two. Oh, She's starting to really twitch. By one, she's like, no, 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 no. Because she doesn't want to go to time out. And we don't do it because it pleases us. But we do it because it teaches her boundaries. It teaches her what is right and wrong. And actually, ultimately, it will save her from making choices that could potentially hurt her in the long run. That is a loving God we have. He does exactly the same 
in this good book. He says, walk in my ways, do not depart from it. That you may never stray to the left or to the right. Why? Because he doesn't want to see us. He doesn't want to see us go away from him. He doesn't want to see us in pain and in agony. But sometimes we do. We live lives, our own agenda. But God is saying, live my way and you will see the goodness of God. A.W. Tozer says it this way. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but the goodness of God encourages us not to be afraid of him. The fear, uh, the, to fear and not to be afraid, this is the paradox of faith. We have a God who is so holy that we shouldn't be able to even say his name. But because of Jesus, because of all that he's done, because of his saving grace, because of the fact that he is an all-consuming fire, awesome and wonderful and majestic in power, we come in fear and trembling, but we come in confidence and in reverence and awe that he still loves us and that he is still A very good God. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but the goodness of God encourages us not to be afraid. I wonder this morning, when was the last time you really thought about revering and fearing the Lord God Almighty? I'm sure it's probably not the first thing always on your lips and in your mouth, and it's not in mine either. But as I've been reading and meditating on this text, I've realized that actually sometimes we forget how amazing and how holy he is. And and when we forget that, we actually disrespect the communion table. Because when you forget how holy he is, you forget how amazing and how important the death and the resurrection of Christ was. Because without Jesus, none of us could boldly approach. So we see a great cover-up. We see a great fear. We see a great work and wonder. As you carry on reading, it's amazing that actually as soon as this is all over, it seems to change. There seems to be something in the atmosphere of the church which has changed because they've come to a place of of reverence and awe of who God is that they, don't, they cannot begin to understand and comprehend him because his ways are higher, his thoughts are greater. So they've come to a point of, of realizing that he is not someone to be trifled with, but actually they know that he is all-powerful and he is majestic. And we see in verse 12, it says, The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Their reputation went before them. People in the community, people in the church, people around them knew that these were a people that loved and, 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 and sought God and brought their very best to him. But I love verse 14. Because when we fear God, 
when we hold him and we know him for who he truly is. A God of love, but also a God of holiness and justice. We see that he's also, when we have him in the right place, he is faithful to do his work. It says in verse 14, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. Crowds of both men and women. Did the church shrink because of that circumstance? No. Did the church sit back and, and, and relax? No, because actually God is faithful to build his church. And when we put God in the right place in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives and in the church, God will be faithful to build his church just as he did in Acts. Yet more and more people believed. We can trust that God is faithful to build and bless the work of his church. We long to see the, the growth. We long to see the miraculous. We long to see more of the prophetic in this church. We, we long to see more of the touch of God in this place. But I was reading a commentary and they said sometimes we long for revival but we don't always know what revival really means. Because revival always starts with repentance. Revival always starts with falling on our knees and saying, God, I'm sorry. You are so holy. You are so awesome. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. Once we've gone to a place of repentance, that is when the blessings will flow. That is when God will begin to do exceedingly abundantly above because we have put God on his throne in our hearts. We've put him in the right place and he is able to do what he said he would do. We see that people brought, they brought the sick to be healed. They brought the sick to even just maybe touch or be touched by the shadow of Peter because they wanted to see the healing and the miraculous power of God at work. When we revere him, when we show him the right awe, the authority, the, the power, when we, when, we, when we put him in the right place in our hearts, that is when God will do what he said he will do. And I believe that God is faithful to build his church. And that when each and every one of us come to a point of saying, God, you are God and I am not. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for the things that I've done. Forgive me for putting on those masks that cover up in my life which, which just isn't honoring to you. When we come to that place, that is when we will see the amazing power of God unleashed in our lives and in this place. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But I'm going to go back to this. I'm sure many of you have seen or read this book. The Chronicles of Narnia, an amazing story written by C.S. Lewis. But there is a part in that book which is so humbling and so amazing. Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy are, are with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, you know, the ones that they're, they're making them tea and they're having a, an, an, they've just arrived in Narnia and they're just trying to 
begin to understand what's going on because this land is all completely winter, always winter. I mean, my wife would be crying if it was always winter. But this land, Narnia, was forever winter. And they'd come in and they didn't understand. But they met these two beavers. And they have this conversation over the dinner table whilst they're talking. And there's a conversation. And, it, and, 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 and as Lucy uh, is talking to, to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they, they say, uh, she, Lucy says to him, uh, they're talking about Aslan, and Aslan is the, the, the one that they've said will come. And, and the beaver says to him, he is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And as they continue to talk, Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan, a man? The beaver replies, certainly not. I tell you. He is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king, he's the king of the beasts. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver just said? Who said anything about seeing, being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Today we come before the Lion of Judah. The only one who can open the scroll in heaven, as we read in Revelation. Is he safe? He is safe in many ways, but he's also not safe. But he is also good. He is all-powerful. He is all-loving. But we have to come before him in reverence and in fear and in trembling. Only but for the grace of God. Only but for the grace of God. Come I. May we stand together as we worship him. That we may come before him. In fear and in trembling. Not because we have to be afraid. But because he is holy. He is awesome. And he is the lion of Judah. We sang about it this morning. He is the lion and the lamb, the one who is highly exalted, the king of all kings. And he deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. And he deserves our very lives. Father God, we come before you. And we thank you that you're not safe. 
but that you are good and that you are kind and that you are awesome beyond all understanding. And Lord, I'm sorry, and we are sorry, oh God. When we've forgotten who you are, bring us to our knees, not to humiliate, but to humble us, to make us more like you, oh God. You are good. You are awesome. And you love us unconditionally. We thank you, O oh God, that we can come before you. We can look upon your glorious face because of Jesus, because of all that he's done for us. Yet not for the grace of God come I. Let's worship him today.